Psalm 85. Many and most of really the verses that we're going to look at tonight are verses that we mentioned in one form or another last week. Spend a little bit more time on uh, several of them. That'll kind of be the basis of the message tonight. So I'd like to start in Psalm 85. Going to begin reading in verse number one. Going to read down uh, through verse six. And uh, if you find that place, Psalm 85, verse number one, we'll begin reading there. Give me just a moment here. I was talking to you and not finding it myself. Here we go. Psalm 85 and verse number one says, Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sin. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation and cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? And let's have a word of prayer. We'll just ask God's blessing and we'll be looking then into his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the wonderful day you gave us. We thank you for the, the, the sufficiency of strength that you gave to us. And we thank you for um, the evidence of your guidance and watch care and, and, and even tender mercies that we experience in our lives. We're, we're grateful, Lord, for your times of tenderness. And thank you for the way that you've touched our hearts and ministered to us here today, whether through the music or some other way that the Word of God was presented to us. We're just grateful for all the willing workers, people that play the offertory and special numbers, and people that uh, do the special music, and those who play the instruments, and folks that work back in the audiovisual booth, and folks that work in the nursery, and folks that work in junior church, and the ushers, and the list is a long one. So we're just grateful for each of the people who does uh, something special on behalf of us all so that we might meet and worship and be blessed and meet with you. And uh, Lord, give us the opportunity and privilege of doing that again tonight. We realize we really can't worship you in spirit and in truth tonight without, first of all, your cleansing, without your presence with us, without the power of the Holy Spirit to take the word of God that we hear and bring it home to us and exactly the place and way that we may need it. And I don't know what that is tonight, Lord. I only know the message you've given me, and I pray that you will give me utterance and freedom of speech tonight. I pray that I'll have a, a liberty and a freedom that you give, and I pray that I'll be able just to bring practical, helpful thoughts as we continue pondering this subject of revival. For we pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Got a phone call this past week, didn't get a chance to return the call yet, but from a member of the uh, Will Galkin evangelistic team inquiring about an email that I had sent several weeks ago. Kind of interesting because I did send the email several weeks ago and I had begun to wonder, in fact, I had kind of mentally put it on a to-do list that I needed to contact them and find out if they got the email. And then I got the phone call, so I knew they did. And I had been sending them information that uh, they send us in advance, uh, information about the meetings and different things that they offer and different formats and this type of thing. And we had spent some decent time in our staff planning talking about this and thinking about what, what was the best way to respond to all this and what we wanted to communicate to them. So I finally got that email taken care of and, and plenty of time for them to digest before our meeting coming up here in mid-April. And I finally heard back, so hopefully this week I'll get a chance to return that call. 
But that's the reason that I've been wanting to talk a little bit about revival in several messages. I mentioned that I, I didn't want to interrupt the morning series simply because it seemed like God has led so much in these messages that allow us to have a lead up to Easter. And uh, the evening is a good time for us to do this as well. Maybe we don't have as many people here to catch, but uh, we can uh, certainly catch a number of people. And last week we talked about, is the term revival outdated? Tonight, the title of the message, as you see there, is Who Needs Revival? Now, you might have noticed that in how I inflected that a moment ago, that title is actually capable of a couple of different interpretations. Wouldn't you put it up to somebody who majored in interpretation in his graduate work to come up with something that has more than one interpretation? But I did it really on purpose because there are two senses in which you can take this. The first one is kind of the flip sense. Who needs revival? And if you think about it, this is kind of maybe where we were working last week a little bit because we were talking about whether or not revival is an outdated term. If it is, then we could legitimately ask the question that way, who needs revival? If we've gotten to the place in our thinking where we think we've grown past that and that's just something that they did maybe in the 20th century and in the 19th century, but it's not really for us today, well, then we, maybe we would ask the question that way. I hope we got past that. I hope that in looking at a number of verses last week, we were able to conclude that, no, really, revival is a biblical term, and we just need to be careful that we use it biblically, but it certainly has relevance, and we found that by investigating these passages that when the Bible uses revival in a, a, the spiritual sense, that we're thinking about it uh, in our messages here, it's talking about something that God prescribes for his people, something God wants to give and do in the hearts of his people. So if this is something God wants to do for us, then certainly um, we should have interest in it. And we certainly shouldn't think that we've outgrown the need for it. So who needs revival? Well, hopefully what we accomplished in the message last week was seeing that, well, we do. God's people really are the focus of revival. So I wanted to bring us back in the opening of tonight's message to one of the verses that makes that so clear. So then you notice that in the verses that we read tonight, it's the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, God's people as such. Doesn't mean that every single person in that category is saved, but in the main, we're talking about God's people. He's talking to his people in this psalm. And when we get to verse six, the psalmist prays, wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee. So really, we know from a biblical standpoint that the focus of revival is God's people. So if we were to ask the question tonight in that sense, who needs revival? Well, we could give a very general answer. God's people need revival. My question to you tonight is, can we do better than that? Can we get more specific? Can we just say God's people, but that seems general enough to make one point, but not really specific enough to help us? Can we study these verses a little bit more closely that we talked about last time? Find any hints in them about who might specifically among God's people be special focus of God's working in revival. And I think we can do that. I, I wouldn't uh, want to say this is a complete list tonight, but almost all of this I've taken from these verses. So at least the list that we have compiled should be all biblical thoughts. They should all come from biblical texts. So we are going to start with Psalm 85, six tonight. And first of all, who needs revival? And in this verse, I believe that we can say that the joyless need revival. How do we see that thought? We'll just take a look at the verse again. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? 
So what happens when we sort of find ourselves in a position that we are really good prospects? We really need God to touch our lives. We really need God to do a work in our hearts. Well, if we have a pattern of life, a pattern in our Christian life in which we seem to have lost our joy, well, boy, we're good prospects. We really need God to come along and give us a fresh touch from him. Now, did, I hopefully you caught how I put that, a pattern of life. Because, folks, really, truthfully, we all have rough patches here and there, and we all have bad days. And that's not really so much what I'm talking about, although we can drill down to that, and we can say, well, I should have been victorious even in the smaller moment. Tonight, I'm more concerned to make the point that if you can kind of look at your life and see that you just have sort of hit a, a stretch in which there's just not a whole lot of joy, not a whole lot of enthusiasm about your Christian experience, then... Maybe it's time to pray that God would really do a special work in your heart and you don't have to wait for Will Galkin to get here. Why do I say this is to look a little bit more at the context of this. Kind of interesting if you look at the superscription that you don't learn too much. It simply says, to the chief musician, a psalm for the sons of Korah. So we know that these people were the temple musicians, but it doesn't tell us really who the author of the psalm is, and we really don't have any particular way to tell maybe what the context of it was. Like, if David had been the author, we know that it would be during his time, and we might be able then to look at the verses and get some idea what situation in his life, or actually, sometimes in the superscription, people have gone before us who have done a lot of that study and meditation and arrived at certain conclusions. I do hasten to remind you again that these superscriptions are not inspired, but they are helpful in many instances. This case, we don't get much information. So it's sort of like one of the minor prophets, like we've been looking at on Wednesday night. Whatever we're going to learn, we're going to have to learn from the context of the psalm. Do we find any clues? Well, yes, we do, because look in verse number one. It uses a word that tends to direct our thinking to a particular period in Israel's history. It says this. See if you can find the word. Lord, thou hast been favorable unto thy land. Thou hast brought back Jacob from captivity. Got any clues? What word might it be that would give us a clue to the context of this, a, a general type of a clue? Anybody? What word? Captivity. captivity, right. Well, now we have a decision to make, though, because if we take that in the fullest, literalist sense of the word, then we might be thinking, as do some scholars, that this particular psalm is what we call post-exilic. In other words, this is after the captivity, after the children of Israel returned to the land. And the psalmist is reflecting on God's dealings with his people. Can't prove, can't disprove. Okay? It's just one of those things. And people have different ideas about it. And it's not, it's not invalid. It may, it may be exactly right. Well, if that is true, or even if it isn't true, even if the term captivity, as in some places in the Bible, is kind of used figuratively for what a captivity means. Uh, you go through a period of captivity, so to speak. Spiritual captivity is a period of distance from God and a period in which you're under God's chastening because you've walked in a manner displeasing to him. The Bible does use it that way, but either way, you get back to the same point. And I'll show you this. If you look more carefully at the verses, he's reflecting. He says, thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people, verse 2. Thou hast covered all their sin. So sin was the problem. Now God has brought them back out of that captivity. Obviously, they've confessed their sins. They've made things right with God. They're in a position now for him to bring his blessing back into their lives. 
That's further elaborated on in verse number 3. Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God, of our salvation, and cause thine anger toward us to cease. But now, whoa, now we seem to be shifting gears. Now it seems like the psalmist is reflecting on some renewed period of chastening. And he says in verse 5, Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Well, it's almost as if now the psalmist is looking back and he's seeing that here's a pattern with God's people and a pattern with God. God's people drift away. He brings chastening into their lives. He draws them back to himself. They make things right. His blessing is restored. And then sometimes we drift off again and he has to do the same thing again. But it is in the confidence of that that the psalmist is praying and knowing that God will in indeed respond to us if we call out to him out of a genuine heart. And so verse 6 comes and says, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? And folks, really, this is it in a nutshell. This is the point about the joyless, that as sheep we tend to wander off. Isn't that one of the figures of speech that the Bible uses over and over again? There's a verse that everybody here probably could quote. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sheep do. They tend to wander off, and sometimes we tend to do that, and the psalmist is talking about that, and he's talking about inevitably whenever this lifestyle, this pattern of sin, he calls it in verse 6 of Isaiah 53, iniquity, enters into our lives, it, 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 it results in a loss of joy. And so if you've fallen into a pattern of joylessness in your life, maybe it's because God is dealing with you. Maybe it's because God is working in your life. Maybe he wants to point out things that he really wants to have you draw close to him. By the way, um, we, we really don't have to go out of the Psalms. All we have to do, and, and, and if you want to do this, but I think you know these verses pretty well. If we were to go back to Psalm 51 for a moment, that really sort of makes this point in a way that you, you know, is, is kind of, so clear that you can't miss it. David's writing this psalm. He's obviously gotten out of fellowship with God. This is a psalm written in commemoration of the sin with Bathsheba. So he's obviously strayed in a very deep sense from being in God's will by uh, having an affair with a woman and then uh, trying to cover that over by sending essentially a letter along with the man whom he was condemning to death. He really wrote his death warrant. So he was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of murder. He obviously got out of fellowship with God. The mere fact that he tried to cover that shows us that he had not made things right with God. And so when he writes Psalm 32 and he writes Psalm 51, he's reflecting on this. And it's obvious that he's gone through a period of captivity. It's obvious that he's gone through a period of spiritual chastisement in his life. And he's felt it. He's felt it deep down in his soul and he's resisted the working of the Holy Spirit in his heart until finally Nathan the prophet comes to him and he makes it right. And we see this twice mentioned in Psalm 51, verse 8. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Tell you what, it's no fun being in God's woodshed. And verse number 11, he talks about it again. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 12. He says, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. So this is not necessarily an exercise in trying to go super, super deep. This is just looking at what's here and 
This is what the psalmist is talking about in this verse. We, we lose our joy because we get away from God and God is dealing with us and sin is always a joy killer. You can just mark that down. If you get away from God and get out of fellowship with God, that's a, a definite reason for the loss of joy in our lives. You know, many times people around us can tell this because we don't seem to be happy. And we heard a little bit about that here in our Sunday school class in this room this morning. We heard about smiling. And we even heard about practicing it. I'm afraid to do that. I'm afraid I'll use up all I have. But you know, folks, really there's a lot to that, that when we kind of get away from God and get crotchety and get out of fellowship, lots of times folks can tell that and they sort of observe that about us and wonder what's wrong. And sometimes it's not a very good advertisement for the Lord. You, you may have heard this before. It's kind of humorous, really. But pretty much everyone has heard the name Oliver Wendell Holmes, the, the well-known jurist, the well-known Supreme Court justice. <laughs> He tells this when he was reflecting back earlier in his life to his career choice, and he says this. At one point in my life, he says, I might have entertained the ministry if certain clergymen I knew hadn't looked so much like undertakers. <laughs> well, that's not a very good advertisement, is it? To think that someone observed us in our role as a Christian or in some official capacity as a Christian, and it kind of turned them away, really, from a deeper interest in maybe Christian pursuit, Christian service. That's kind of a, a condemnation, and we don't want that. So first of all, who needs revival? Well, the joyless do. Secondly, let's turn to Psalm 138, verse 7. So we're still in Psalms. We're moving forward. I think that's how I have all of this set up tonight. So we may turn a few pages, but we'll sort of uh, keep it moving forward so that we're not getting uh, confused with things. Psalm 138, and here we find who, who needs revival, and in this verse, the troubled need revival. Psalm 138, verse 7. So notice verse number 7, the psalmist says this, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of thine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. All right, who wrote this psalm? Well, the superscription says it's the Psalm of David. So if we have that accurately and David wrote this psalm, I guess verse number 7 makes a lot of sense to us because David is talking about walking in the midst of trouble. And if we say, well, that's general, what kind of trouble was he experiencing? Well, more often than not, he tells you, and more often than not, it has to do with exactly what he mentions. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. You know, folks, I just want to point out, I don't know if you ever had this experience before, but I would read the Psalms for a period of time, and I would think to myself, you know, why did David always talking about his enemies, always talking about his enemies, always talking about his enemies? Can he talk about something that I have in common? Well, there's a lot of ways I guess you can look at that. Um, I guess we all have enemies, and maybe <laughs> that's not a great thought. But more so, most of us are not engaged in the kind of thing that David was engaged in, at least not typically so. I mean, David had battles. David had external enemies. He had the Philistines, and he had all these people that, you know, he led Israel in battle against God's enemies. But David had a whole pile on the inside, too. And so David was constantly have to having to deal with court intrigue and backstabbers and 
people who, at one point he even remarks, yea, mine own familiar friend hath lifted up his heel against me. And it's a prophetic thing about Judas Iscariot, but it, it's reflective of some things that happened in his own life because what happened, even his own son was more or less a Judas of sorts, Absalom was. Then you had his personal counselor, his Ahith Ahithophel, the Gilanite. He was in league with Absalom in this thing. And boy, I'm telling you what, David knew a lot of ups and downs in his life, didn't he? Still, though, you can almost begin to feel it's monotonous. He keeps talking about his enemies all the time, his enemies all the time. Then all of a sudden it dawned on me, well, you know, that's crazy to worry about that and fault David. He's just telling us what he had to deal with. The application of the thing is, is that whether you have enemies or whether you have other problems that qualify as troubles, God is near. And God promises to refresh us and God promises to revive us. Because what happens in the midst of our troubles? Well, verse 3, he tells us, if you look at that. He says, in the day when I cried, thou answerest me and thou strengthenest me with strength in my soul. And so what is it? Many times when we undergo times of trouble, difficulty, hardship, heartbreak, different things that can come into our lives, it just sort of leaves us sapped. You ever felt that way? I didn't say you were a sap. I said you feel that way. You just feel exhausted. You feel like emotionally and physically and in every other way you just are drained. Just sort of maybe feel blown away. And sometimes the difficulties and the troubles that we face in life can do that to us, whether it's enemies or whether it's something else. And so we hit a rough patch and we're in that maybe for a period of time and we just kind of get beat up. And we need a time of restoration, and that's exactly what David is talking about. He's talking about God's ability. He says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. And, you know, David has some kind of interesting ways that he figures, figures of speech by which he portrays this. Earlier, I was talking about the fact that the Bible is seeming constantly to use the figure of sheep and how we tend to wander off, and a great place that the Bible is talking about sheep is Psalm 23, isn't it? And David was a shepherd, so he could tell us a lot about sheep, and he could use a lot of that imagery. Well, when he gets to verse 3 in Psalm 23, this is what he says, he restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restoreth my soul. You know, I've read that verse for years. You have too. I think I've known this psalm by heart since second grade. And so we've all recited this, we've all, trouble is we know it so well that if we're not careful, we don't slow down, we don't meditate on the words. What's it mean, he restores my soul? And I think there are several things that it can mean. Sheep wander, and so do you notice in the very next part, he says, uh, after he talks about restoring my soul, he says, he leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake, and God can cause us to return. But I think it can mean more. I think it's one of those things that God knows is capable of more than one application to our lives. I think it means that God has the ability, especially in the context of verse 2 where it talks about, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. God knows what we need. God knows when we need the restoration of balance and tranquility and calm in our hearts. And only God can really do that. And he can do it like no other person can do. So that's one way that God portrays what David is talking about in Psalm 138. But another way, and David is talking about this too because he wrote this psalm. This is Psalm 40. Listen to this. 
Verse one says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. Verse two is what I'm after. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay and set my feet on a rock and established my goings. And like I say, sometimes you just feel like, wow, you just feel like you can't get your footing. You just feel like you've been knocked so hard and down so far that you're in a horrible pit or that every time you try to gain your footing and gain your balance, it's like miry clay. And you're going to slip. And I was thinking this morning while Pastor Adam was making that announcement about the galactic thing in the ice, and I thought, you know, I don't really need to be on the ice. <laughs> I'm about half afraid of the ice. <laughs> so more power to the rest of you. I just don't want to hear about the ambulance having to be called or any broken bones. But that's, he's talking about that, and he says that God can put our feet back on a rock and establish our goings. And I think that there are times, beloved, in our life when we need that from God. We just need that. And there's no other one who can do that quite like God can do that. So who needs revival? Well, if we've last, lost our joy, we do. If we're pass, passing through a time of particular trouble in our life, we may very well need God's special ability to come and touch us and restore us and, and bring us back to where we need to be, into balance. And then thirdly, I'm going to ask us to turn to Isaiah chapter 57. That was one of the verses we looked at, so we're making good on the promise here, moving forward. Just go to the book of Isaiah chapter 57. And the verse in question is 15, so I'm going to read that. And it says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to resist the heart, or to revive, sorry, the heart of the contrite ones. So number three, who needs revival? The proud need revival. Now I, I know the minute that I say that, we kind of tense up because we know that it isn't good to be called proud. It's not good if we're proud and pride is showing in our lives. But I don't want you to um, be overly stung by the use of that terminology. I know it's highly negative. But what I want to say to you is, you know, pride is a very subtle thing. And pride has a way of manifesting itself in, sometimes in ways that we never dreamed it was really kind of creeping in. So there are obvious things, right? So if you encounter someone who's uh, talking about themselves constantly, never gives you an opening, just talks constantly about themselves, and it's just you know one story after another, and this and that, and bragging and all these types of things. Well, that's a turn off, and you know, I mean, that's a more maybe an, a more obvious type of a manifestation. We kind of know that's not good. In fact, we know that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But you know one of the very subtle ways, and I think that's what it's talking about in this context. You know, I'll show it to you in a minute. One of the very subtle ways that pride can come into our lives, and it, it, it is that really, so we might as well just call it what it is, is when we're not really relying on God, and in essence we're relying on something, someone other than God, and invariably this kind of comes back to us, our own resources. How do I know that this is what the context is? Back up to verse 13, and I believe I did mention this last time, but let's just look at it again. See, here's the context. Isaiah is saying, but this is the Lord speaking in this verse. 
when thou criest, so he's talking to his people, and he says, when thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee. That doesn't make much sense to us. What does it mean by thy companies? And then we maybe find the marginal reading, and we find that companies, the marginal reading that we get for this, to bring out the sense of it, is collection of idols. And we know that this is one of the great things that God brought his judgment upon his people for. And so what God is really saying to them in this verse is, hey, if your idols are so great, why don't you call on them when you have problems? See what kind of help you get. You know, Baal was really great until Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to that contest. And they got out there and they hooped and hollered and cried and did all that stuff all day long. Cut themselves and the blood gushed all over the place. I like Elijah. He sort of stuck it to him. He said, well, maybe he's off somewhere. Maybe he's asleep. And they kept on. And the more he said that, the more they intensified things. And there was nothing, no word. In fact, in this verse, if you continue looking at it, it says here, when thou criest, let thy companies, let, let these idols, let these, uh, your collection of idols, let them deliver you. But he says, the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. They're just vanity. That's all they are. There's no substance to them, no real power, no real ability to, to help God's people. But he says, I'll tell you what, he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain and ye shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way, take up the stumbling block out of the way of my people. And here's the verse, for thus saith the Lord, the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And what is he saying? He's saying, you know, when we don't depend on God, when we sort of act like we don't need God, that's just sort of an inverse manifestation of pride. And God is going to work with us on that. He's going to keep dealing with us on that until we see it for what he is. And we do it in the strangest ways that we would never identify that way. For example, if we go through, consistently go through days without any personal worship, any, any time with God. What are we really saying? I can do without you today, oh God, I'm fine. I go to church on Sunday. I get a shot on Sunday, get a booster. And I'm okay for the rest of the days. And God says, well, we'll, we'll have to sort of bring you along to see out differently. Have to bring you into a closer walk with me. Might have to send some things along to show you that you really need me in your life not just on Sunday, not just Wednesday night, not just when, you know, it's the foxhole prayers. But you need me every day. And so the Lord says, I really treasure that. When, when my child has learned to walk in humble dependence on me, I treasure that so much that I draw near to that person. I dwell with that person. I bless that person. I give them my grace. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what he's saying in this verse. I was thinking a little, and I know this is to remind you of something that I told you about not too terribly long ago, but you know what the law of good, first law of good teaching is? 
Your repetition. You know what the second law of good teaching is? Repetition. So maybe it won't hurt. I have a confession to make. Until we got this Rejoice hymnal, I never knew that chorus, Learning to Lean. Did you? Maybe some of you did. I'd never come across that chorus before. And we sang that in the church, and we sang that in the church, and we sang that in the church, that Learning to Lean. And I thought, wow, that is really some message that's in that, especially for just a chorus. And I got to doing some checking on it. You know, the chorus, it says this, learning to lean, learning to lean, learning. I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Finding more power than I'd ever dreamed, I'm learning to lean on Jesus. So I got to looking around. Man, did I have to look. I mean, it wasn't a real obvious thing. I had to look and look and look. And finally, I found a man who had some research on the guy who wrote this chorus and what the story of it, what story was behind it in his life. And the gentleman who wrote it is a man by the name of John Stallings. You might remember me telling you about this, but Stallings was actually a pastor in Montgomery, Alabama. And he hit a rough patch. You talk about troubles. I mean, he he really did. I mean, one of his daughters took sick and nearly died, and then he had another daughter that was seriously injured in a car accident, and just the way all of this affected him and perhaps some other uh, things that were going on in his life, he just felt like he needed to resign his pastorate and get away from it and needed just to be with God. And so he moved to Florida. Well, he got to Florida, so I don't know whether this was a commentary on a good decision or a bad decision, but he got to Florida, and things didn't improve too much. Things weren't going well there either. And as he was telling the story later, he said, it's just kind of like one day, all of a sudden this hit him. This phrase had been bouncing around in his, in his mind, learning to lean, learning to, to lean. And he sat down and wrote that chorus, learning to lean, learning to lean. I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Finding more power than I'd ever dreamed, I'm learning to lean on Jesus. And then... Several months later, he wrote verses, and we don't have the verses in our hymnal, but there are some verses to this, and to be truthful, I'm not sure I've heard the way the verses go. I don't recall whether I looked at that or listened to that on YouTube. Oh, I know what it was. I clicked on the thing, and it said it's no longer there, so that didn't do much. I'm sure you can find it, but I, I just didn't, ran out of time when I was doing that. Well, I think what I'm saying to you in this third point is that's really I think it that, that chorus captures that and that's what God wants us to do is learn learning to lean and I think of Paul's comment in Philippians chapter 4 when he says I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content and I think to myself every time I encounter that well he's ahead of me because he speaks as if he's mastered it and I don't know that I have. Do <laughs> you? I don't think I can quite join those ranks if what Paul means by that past tense is that he's got it mastered. We're all, most of the rest of us, learning, still learning, learning to lean on Jesus. But if we do that, as the chorus tells us, we find power that we never dreamed when we learn to lean on Jesus. Let's turn lastly to the book of Hosea. We'll just take a few moments for this last thought, the book of Hosea. So you get past Daniel and get to Hosea, the first of the minor prophets, and we want chapter 6 first of all.
And the two occasions of revival are in verse 2 of this chapter, and then you have one in chapter 14, verse 7. Let's look here first. Let's begin reading in verse 2 so we get a flavor of the context. <clears throat> I'm sorry, verse 1. <clears throat> Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. In the third day, he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Now, if you want to keep a finger or whatever, we can get back to this. But I, uh, let's turn to chapter 14, because I want you to see something about the context of both of these references Hosea gives to revival. Because in the fourth place, the people that we find here are the hopeless. Verse number 7 is our verse. Let's read a little before that. Verse 4 says, I will heal, heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast his roots as Lebanon. His branches, branches shall spread, and his beauty shall be as the olive tree, and his smell as Lebanon. And then here's our verse. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon. Who needs revival? Well, in the fourth place, the hopeless do. Why would I describe this context as the hopeless? Because these are people that are being threatened, I guess we could say, with God's judgment. I mean, back when we were looking on Wednesday night at Hosea for a few minutes, I mentioned that one person describes Hosea as the prophet of Israel's zero hour. What's meant by that? Well, I'll tell you what's meant by that. See, he was ministering between the years of 753 and 714. How we know that is the kings he mentions during whose reign he served or, or ministered. What's right in the middle of that in 722 is the Assyrian captivity. God kept telling his people. He kept sending his prophets. He kept describing to them their sins, their idolatry, all of the different things and telling them, urging them to repent. Finally, he sent this man, Hosea, who with a broken heart ministered to them because he ministered to them against the backdrop of a, of a broken heart, a heart broken by a faithless wife who went off and was unfaithful to him. And yet God told him to receive her back. And that was meant to, that was meant to give hope. It was meant to show his people that even though very harsh penalties can sometimes be exacted for our sins. God always holds out the hope of restoration. There's, we're never really beyond hope with God if we know him. And so these messages of judgment relentlessly come. They relentlessly come. But then you come across these verses like Hosea 6.2 and he says, you know what? You read this first verse and he says, there's hope. He says, come and let us return. This is, this is Hosea. Look, hey, let's repent. Let's return to the Lord because, yes, he's torn. Yes, he will heal us. He has smitten, but yes, he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. And the other verses are much to the same effect. What's the point? The point is this, beloved. No matter how discouraged we are, no matter how defeated we are, by the messes we've made, by the chastening that sometimes God has to bring on us for our straying and for our 
our sinfulness, he always holds out a certain hope to us. Don't you love verses like 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't you love the promise of 2 Chronicles seven fourteen? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. There is hope. And I'm not really sure how God wants to use these words and these ideas in our hearts and minds tonight, but I can tell you if God is speaking to your heart and you come to him and you confess your sins, he'll forgive you. might not be able to take away all the consequences of some of the choices that you've made, but God will definitely restore and forgive and heal and cleanse and restore joy and peace in our hearts and lives and give us a clean page of tomorrow. So you, do you find yourself described anywhere in these four? Joyless, troubled, proud, hopeless, discouraged, defeated. Then maybe you can rejoice in the fact that God wants, you see, he prescribes revival, wants us to have that, wants to do that for us, wants to give us a fresh touch from him we just need to talk to him about it we just need to ask him for it we just need to meet him on his terms not ours if you find yourself described anywhere here or in some other place that maybe the Holy Spirit has brought to your attention well maybe we're the focus maybe we're the ones who need revival there's really no shame in seeing that there's no shame in admitting that to yourself the only shame is seeing it and refusing to face it. We're told that the captain of the, of the Titanic refused to believe that his ship was in trouble until the water was ankle deep in the mail room. By the time he realized that his ship was stricken and going to sink, it was too late. And one can only ponder, had the distress signals been sent out sooner and help sent for more quickly, if a difference might have been made. But, you know, she was unsinkable, and it was unthinkable that something like this could happen. But, folks, it really isn't unthinkable that you and I might need revival. And so let's... If, if God shows us this, if he speaks to us in our hearts, let's, it's not a, a shame to see that. It's just a shame to see it and then not respond. Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for your loving kindness to us. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for the way that you are long-suffering. And just pray you'll bless us and meet us where we are. Help us to identify the spiritual needs we have and the things we need to do to come to you and seek your blessing and Lord we want to pray not just for these special meetings but we do pray for them we pray that we might find you there and find good services and find strength to come and be faithful in the attendance at them so that we might not miss out even so much as a single message if it's possible on the things that you might have but if we see things sooner help us not to be waiting on just a schedule help us to talk to you seek your face ask you for the strength we need the restoration and the peace 
that we need. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.